What makes a legend? What is it about some stories that stick in our collective memories while others fade away? I think some legends leave their mark in the details. The outfits worn, the one-liners said, the delicate turns a tale can take. For some, it's the bigger pieces. Who did what and why? And in this story, it's both. It's all of that. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who probably couldn't hijack a plane, but will be damned if someone tries to rob me of my free soft drinks and little bag of pretzels and a Biscoff. Today, we'll load Joy to the World by Three Dog Night into our eight tracks, buckle in and hitch a ride on the infamous trail of D.B. Cooper, the mysterious everyman who hijacked a flight and fascinated America with his weird flair while doing it. America in the early 70s was a wild place. The pendulum, which had swung so far to the left in the late 60s with the free love movement, was trying to make its way right. The end of the contested Vietnam War was coming. So was the Watergate scandal. Civilian hope for a brighter future gave way to distrust in government, frustration, and revolt. Amidst all the chaos on the ground, skyjackings had become so common that about once every five days, someone was holding up an airplane for one reason or another somewhere in the world. Airport security was a joke. Not only could any Tom, Dick, or Harry saunter up to any gate they pleased completely unticketed, but you didn't even need an ID to buy a domestic airline ticket. You could walk up to the ticket agent, say your name was Richard Nixon, and you wanted a one-way ticket to Des Moines, and they'd be like, here's your ticket, Mr. Nixon, enjoy your flight. And so, on November 24th, 1971, a man in a dark suit, skinny tie and sunglasses, carrying a dark raincoat and attache case, bought a one-way ticket for a 2.50 p.m. half-hour flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. The plane was a tiny puddle jumper designed for this kind of short trip. The man, who showed no ID, gave his name as Dan Cooper and paid for the ticket in cash. Mr. Cooper took a seat at the very back of the small plane, ordered a bourbon and soda, and lit his first of many cigarettes. About 10 minutes into the flight, Cooper handed the flight attendant, 23-year-old Florence Schaffner, a note. Stewardess Schaffner, who was later described needlessly by New York Magazine as cute, perky, and sexy, was apparently so used to being slipped notes by horny male passengers that, according to the same publication, she took to wearing a wig on board to disguise herself. Why she thought she needed to disguise herself, or that a wig would stop a creepy dude bro from hitting on her, is between Florence Schaffner and her higher power. So Schaffner dropped the note in her purse, intending, I imagine, to throw it away with the dozen or so other notes she'd probably gotten that day. But a few minutes later, Cooper called Schaffner over and said, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. She was probably waiting for him to finish that sentence with, In my pants for you, hearty har har. But, according to New York Magazine, she looked in his eyes and detected he was serious. The note, written in elegant handwriting in all capital letters, read, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit beside me. Schaffner sat down in the empty seat next to Cooper and asked to see the bomb. Cooper opened the briefcase and showed her the bomb made apparently of six sticks of dynamite, wires, and a battery. 
He then dictated the following. I want $200,000 by 5 p.m. in cash, put in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. I can't even imagine the ice that ran through Schaffner's veins at that point. As common as skyjackings were, I'm sure it was one of those things you think will never happen to you. I guess being a stewardess in 1971 took more grit than I've ever had. Tina Mucklow, one of the other stewardesses on the flight, told Rolling Stone magazine in 2021 that at that point she had become aware of the situation and either asked Schaffner if she wanted her to stay there with Cooper, or Cooper instructed her to take Schaffner's place while Schaffner went to deliver the instructions to the flight crew in the cockpit. However it went down, Mucklow became Cooper's de facto interpreter for the rest of the flight, relaying messages back and forth using the plane's interphone. She told Rolling Stone magazine, I was there for the hijacker to kind of keep him feeling safe, reassured, comfortable, and not detonating that bomb. Ugh. By 3.20 p.m., Northwest Airlines people on the ground were scrambling to get the supplies Cooper had demanded. The $200,000 wouldn't be an issue. Skyjackings were so common by then that airlines literally had insurance to cover them. So the airline only had to cough up a $20,000 deductible while their hijacker with a bomb clause covered the rest. Though apparently, according to a piece in the New York Times that ran the next day, quote, airline workers had to go to several banks to assemble the large sum, end quote. While the money was sort of no problem, the parachutes were another story. Two military models had been located at a nearby Air Force base, but when Cooper was told this, he demanded sport models instead. Apparently, the military parachutes opened automatically once they dropped below a certain altitude, whereas the sport model had to be manually opened with a ripcord, allowing the person wearing it to free fall longer. As someone who couldn't be bribed with all the money in the world to jump out of an airplane, I don't know why this distinction was important to him. I suppose, if I had to guess, maybe he figured the longer he floated down on a parachute, the more time there would be for snipers on the ground or in the air to spot him and shoot him down. The 30-minute flight should have been over by then, of course, but the pilot, Captain William Scott, had been instructed by the crew on the ground to circle the airfield over the Puget Sound in order to minimize collateral damage if Cooper decided to detonate the bomb. Tina Mucklow later found out that the reason they kept circling above the water was to prevent the plane and the people in it from, quote, raining down on the people below if the bomb went off. Good Lord. At one point, Mucklow asked him if he had some kind of grudge against Northwest Airlines, to which Cooper replied, I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. When the money and supplies were finally ready and assembled at the Seattle-Tacoma airport near 5.30 p.m., Cooper instructed the flight attendants to have the passengers lower the window shades because, according to How Stuff Works, he assumed, correctly, that snipers were positioned to shoot Cooper as soon as they had a clean shot. By this point, the plane had been circling for two hours. Passengers were told they were circling to burn off fuel because of a minor mechanical problem. Could you imagine that happening today? Social media would be lit up with posts from angry passengers screaming about their freedom and their rights, while some Karen is up at the cockpit demanding to speak to the manager. 
But apparently none of the passengers had any idea they were in the middle of what would become one of the most infamous stories of the 20th century. Flight 350 landed at 5.46 p.m. at SeaTac Airport, and Cooper instructed the crew on the ground to have the money and supplies brought on board before the 36 passengers were allowed off. It would be another hour before Cooper allowed Florence Schaffner and senior stewardess Alice Hancock to deboard. Remaining on board were Cooper, stewardess Tina Mucklow, pilot Captain Scott, and co-pilot Robert Ratizak. By now, Cooper had made more demands known. According to the New York Times, quote, the hijacker said that he wanted to go to Mexico City, but the crew explained that that was outside the jet's maximum range. They eventually settled for a refueling stop at Reno, Nevada. The hijacker made very careful stipulations for the takeoff of the flight to Reno. He said that the altitude was to remain below 10,000 feet, that the flaps be kept canted, and that the rear exit door be kept open. The result was that the plane coasted at near its minimum cruising speed of 200 miles an hour, end quote. He also said he wanted the plane to take off with the rear staircase down. With all the plans ironed out, the plane took off for Reno at approximately 7.36 p.m., when the plane reached 10,000 feet, around 8 p.m., Mucklow helped Cooper open the rear staircase. Honestly, I can't imagine the thoughts swirling through her head at this point. I wonder if she thought one of the two parachutes was meant for her. But about five minutes later, Cooper told Mucklow to go join the pilot and co-pilot in the cockpit. She told Rolling Stone magazine, Probably one of the last things I did was to say, will you please... Please take the bomb with you. But Cooper was apparently too busy preparing his parachutes to be bothered to answer her. She left for the cockpit, and co-pilot Radizak told Rolling Stone magazine, All of a sudden, the cockpit door opened, and in walked this lovely lady who had been our passive resistance to the hijacker. It was a big relief. Lovely lady? Sigh. Like, this woman had remained calm in the face of literal death, and the best adjective you can come up with is lovely? And before you go tweeting at me that our sensibilities were different in 1971, he said this in 2007. Also, don't bother tweeting at me. I've deleted my Twitter account because of, you know, fascism. At 7.42 p.m., a light came on in the cockpit, alerting the crew that the back staircase door had been lowered. The crew then called the cabin phone and asked Cooper if he needed any help, which was generous, to say the least. Cooper said no, and at 8.12, the crew felt the plane wobble, which meant Cooper had jumped from the bottom of the aft staircase into the blustery, rainy dark below. This means that there was a full half hour between when Cooper opened the rear door of the cabin and when he finally jumped out of the plane. What was he doing for 30 minutes? Did he use the bathroom? I know that before I have to go on stage, I usually have to pee about 600 times. Maybe he was having the skyjacking version of stage fright? Like he's standing there at the open door, his tie whipping furiously in the rushing wind, and he's like, again? Before shuffling off to the restroom for the 12th time? I would imagine using the restroom while strapped to a parachute isn't easy. Or was he trying to talk himself into the next step of the plan? Was he pacing back and forth, smoking cigarette after cigarette, thinking, 
damn it, Dan, what the hell have you gotten yourself into this time? Maybe your mother was right. Maybe you should have gone to trade school. Maybe you should have become a plumber. Everyone always has a pipe that needs fixing. You couldn't just be happy with a normal life, could you? A wife, a couple kids, a golden retriever named Sparky who greets you at the door when you come home from a hard day of fixing toilets. Maybe an affair with the secretary from the pipe supply company barbecuing with the guys on the weekends mowing the lawn. But no, you had to go and hijack an airline, didn't you? You just had to be that guy, didn't you, Dan? But at that point, his choices were jump out of the plane at 10,000 feet or face a lifetime in prison. The plane landed in Reno, Nevada a little after 11 p.m. Needless to say, Cooper was not on board. Neither was the $200,000, the briefcase with the bomb in it, or the two parachutes. Oddly enough, though, he left his tie behind. Maybe I was right, and it really was whipping furiously around his face as he stood there in the doorway contemplating his faith and whether or not he had to pee again. Tina Mucklow waited until she was safely in the back of an FBI car to break down and cry. Lovely lady. The FBI, on the other hand, had no time for crying because A, they had a bad guy to catch, and B, G-men never cry. That's science, baby. The massive air and land search began before the plane even landed in Reno, with the FBI sending out fighter jets and a helicopter to tail the plane to see where Cooper jumped. Unfortunately, with the plane only flying at 200 miles per hour, the fighter jets were far too fast and overshot the plane, and the helicopter couldn't fly fast enough to keep up, meaning no one saw Cooper actually jump. But there was that plane wobble at 8.12 p.m., which indicated that Cooper had jumped from the rear stairs. That wobble happened over the Lake Merwin area in Washington State, about 45 minutes north of Portland, Oregon. For some reason, they decided the search would commence south from that point. I'm no geographer, but last I checked, there were at least three other directions, north, east, and west, that Cooper could have headed off in. Authorities also had to begin researching who this Dan Cooper actually was. But they encountered a major hiccup when a reporter with United Press International mistakenly called him D.B. Cooper in an early article about the incident. And that was that. For some reason, that one article became canon almost instantly. The New York Times called him D.B. in an article the day after the hijacking. Obviously, authorities figured the name he gave when he bought his ticket was likely an alias, so whether it was Dan or D.B. actually didn't really matter. What was more important was the physical description they could get from eyewitnesses on the flight from Portland to Seattle, including, most importantly, Florence Schaffner and Tina Mucklow, who both had occasion to get within feet of Cooper and talk with him. Mucklow told officials, He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm. The resulting composite sketch was of a slight, middle-aged man with a receding hairline who looks, remarkably, like a young Fred Astaire. The Washington Post called him Swarthy, which, where they got that idea from, I don't know. He also wore sunglasses the entire time, so how they managed to draw eyes on the sketch is anyone's guess. For all we know, he was severely wall-eyed. Meanwhile, the air and land search was severely hampered by bad weather. Their best hope was of finding the parachute, but as one astute officer pointed out, quote, he thought of everything else, he sure wouldn't overlook hiding those chutes, end quote. 
Officers also went door to door and were like, hey, you wouldn't happen to be harboring a skyjacker by any chance, would you? A skyjacker, you say? Gee whiz, I don't know. Doesn't ring a bell. Hey, Bob, do we have a skyjacker anywhere in the house? Golly, I sure don't think so. It didn't take long for the public to join in the search. Shitty weather or not, $200,000 was a lot of dollars. In fact, it was the equivalent of nearly $1.5 million in today money. You could buy a lot of Tang and Chesterfields with that kind of dough. But even with all those money-hungry civilians on the hunt, not a single trace of Cooper was found in those early days. And surely, in all the rainy, cold, stormy weather, Cooper couldn't have gone far. He was wearing loafers. He certainly didn't have a down coat. And even if he had left himself a stash somewhere on the ground, the chances of finding it after having jumped out of a plane God knows where were slim. But there he was. Or rather, there he wasn't. He was poof, gone, seemingly blooped right out of existence. The FBI, based on what little information they had, were able to determine that Cooper knew enough about parachuting to know which kind of parachute to demand and to attempt to jump out of a plane in tough conditions. They thought perhaps he'd been in the army or paratroops. He had enough of an understanding of planes to know he wouldn't want to fly above 10,000 feet to pull off his jump. He also knew that that particular model, the 727, would be best to jump from as the back stairs were safely away from the engines. According to the piece in the New York Times the day after the heist, quote, There was also apparent purpose in asking for more than one parachute. The reasoning is that authorities would think the hijacker was going to ask the stewardess or a member of the crew to parachute with him, and thus would be sure to provide parachutes that opened. The hijacker was also apparently careful in choosing his terrain. The area around Portland is the only flat place on the Seattle-Reno route. A parachute jump much after the plane passed Portland would involve landing in the snow and cold of the Cascade Mountains. Harold E. Campbell Jr., the FBI agent here in charge of the case, said tonight that there was no evidence that the hijacker had an accomplice or accomplices. He said there was, as yet, no firm clues to his whereabouts or real identity. End quote. As for any physical evidence, all they had was the tie with the tie clip, and the cigarette butts Cooper had smoked, and a single strand of hair on the headrest, none of which gave them much. DNA wasn't a thing in 1971. I mean, obviously it was a thing. Like humans had DNA in 1971, but scientists knew pretty much nothing about it, and certainly not enough to identify a mysterious skyjacker. And somehow, Cooper had managed to leave not a single fingerprint behind. And I can hear you asking, but Daisy, can't they test those cigarette butts now? To which I will say, you would think so, wouldn't you, stranger? You're so smart, and that's why I like you best out of all the strangers. Don't tell the others. But get this, they've all been lost. That's right, gone, just like Cooper himself. As for the single strand of hair, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if the FBI couldn't keep track of eight cigarette butts, that hair is long gone too. And so D.B. Cooper, nay Dan Cooper, actual nay no one really knows, became a folk legend pretty much right away. FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach recalled in his book The Investigation of D.B. Cooper that on the very night of the skyjacking... It was nearly 3 a.m. Thursday when I left the airport and headed home. 
News reports of the hijacking were still being broadcast even at that early hour, and I listened to one on the way home. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. From the tone of the reporter, if the guy could be called a reporter, Cooper was some sort of hero who had beaten the system. He had got away with nearly a quarter million dollars and nobody had been hurt. Regular folks everywhere were hailing Cooper as a hero who'd gotten one over on the man. Some called him a Robin Hood, which doesn't make sense because of the whole not distributing the wealth bit, but whatever. One enterprising silk screener told the New York Times that within three weeks, he'd already sold 3,000 D.B. Cooper Where Are You t-shirts. Five days after the mystery man known to the world as D.B. Cooper jumped from the back of that small airplane with $200,000 and vanished, a letter arrived at the Reno Evening Gazette postmarked from Oakdale, California, made from ransom letter-style cutout letters from a Sacramento Bee. It read, Attention, thanks for the hospitality, was in a rut. A second letter, postmarked November 30th, 1971, from Vancouver, arrived at the Vancouver province in British Columbia. This one was handwritten. It read, The composite drawing on page three, as suspected by the FBI, does not represent the truth. I enjoyed the Great Cup game. Am leaving Vancouver. Thanks for the hospitality, D.B. Cooper. The Grey Cup is a sports ball thing of some kind. The third letter, mailed from Portland, Oregon on December 1st and sent to the Portland Oregonian, used letters cut from a Playboy magazine and read, Am alive and doing well in hometown. P.O. The system that beats the system. Another letter was sent to the Reno Evening Gazette, also on December 1st. This one, postmarked in Sacramento, California, and also again using letters cut from other papers, simply read... Plan ahead for retirement income, D.B. Cooper. A fifth, much longer letter was sent to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and the Seattle Times on December 11th. It read, Sirs, I knew from the start that I wouldn't be caught. I didn't rob Northwest Orient because I thought it would be romantic, heroic, or any of the other euphemisms that seem to attach to situations of high risks. I'm no modern-day Robin Hood. Unfortunately, I do have only 14 months to live. My life has been one of hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. This seemed to be the fastest and most profitable way to gain a few fast grains of peace of mind. I don't blame people for hating me for what I've done, nor do I blame anybody for wanting me to be caught and punished, though this can never happen. Here are some, not all, of the things working against the authorities. I am not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. They could add or subtract from the composite a hundred times and not come up with an accurate description, and we both know it. I've come and gone on several airline flights already, and I'm not holed up in some obscure backwoods town. Neither am I a psychopathic killer. As a matter of fact, I've never even received a speeding ticket. Thank you for your attention. And then, on March 28, 1972, four months after the hijacking, a sixth and final letter was mailed to the Portland Oregonian. This one read... 
This letter is to let you know I am not dead, but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me. This is just how dumb this government is. I like your articles about me, but you can stop them now. D.B. Cooper is not real. I had to do something with the experience Uncle taught me, so here I am, a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to world idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I want out of the system and saw a way through good old Unc. Now you know. I am going around the world and they will never find me because I am smarter than the system's wacky cops and lame duck leaders. Now it is Uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell the lackey cops D.B. Cooper is not my real name. I mean, I think they at least knew that, friend. Anyway, the FBI was definitely not hopping on the these letters are authentic train and continued their search as planned. By the spring of 1972, once the ground had thawed out, two separate searches of 18 days each were conducted by 200 United States Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with United States Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers. A Marine salvage company even sent a submarine into the depths of Lake Merwin, where Cooper ostensibly jumped out of the plane. But again, not a hint of a sign of D.B. Cooper was found. Indeed, nothing happened on the D.B. Cooper investigation until a full eight years later when an eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram found three bundles of weathered $20 bills equaling $5,800 along the Columbia River about nine miles south of Vancouver where he and his family were vacationing. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed part of the $200,000 ransom given to Cooper. But how in the world did it get so far northeast, around 300 miles, of where he jumped? Some thought the money had been dug up during a dredging operation in 1974, which still wouldn't explain how it got up north, but scientists determined, with their sciency ways, that the money had arrived after the dredging operation. Others thought perhaps the bag with the money in it had landed in one river and spent several years moving downstream until it made its way to the Columbia River. But again, scientists were like, well, actually, and explained that the rubber bands the money was wrapped in wouldn't have survived eight years in the water. Regardless of how the money got there, though, investigators were hopeful that perhaps other clues might be found in the same area the money was. But then, just three months after the money was found, Mount St. Helens erupted and buried anything that might have been there to begin with. (laughs) Thanks a lot, nature. It would be another 27 years before the FBI had anything much to say about the D.B. Cooper case, or Norjack, as it was called, which sounds like an anti-car theft device you see advertised in the middle of the night on HLN. On July 12th, 2016, the FBI published a statement that was basically, uh, we still don't know who he was or where he went or what happened to him. Cool update, bro. Their only new tune was that he couldn't have been a very experienced parachuter. The report read, quote, no experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 200 mile an hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve chute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked, end quote. 
But while the FBI was busy shrugging and going, dunno, a team of amateur sleuths calling themselves citizen sleuths took the case on. One thing they were able to determine was that the tie clip on Cooper's tie contained rare elements, including cerium, strontium sulfide, and pure titanium, which they figured out had been used in the Boeing high-tech supersonic transport planes, which was developed in the 60s and 70s. Could it be that Cooper worked for or with Boeing? If so, perhaps employee records could be scoured for a clue. Oddly, though, it seems like nothing much was done with this discovery. As far as I know, no one asked Boeing for employee records at all. In fact, in that statement in 2016, the FBI announced they would no longer be devoting resources to the Cooper investigation, stating that every time a tip or lead was followed up on, it took valuable time and money away from more pressing investigations. But that's not to say there weren't a handful of good suspects. So before we say goodbye, let's meet them, shall we? The first was a man named Richard McCoy, who pulled off a nearly identical plane heist three months after D.B. Cooper's stunt. He jumped out of a 727 using the back stairs with $500,000 in ransom money. McCoy survived the jump and was apprehended within days and sentenced to 45 years. He then escaped prison using a fake gun he'd made out of plaster and riding off on the back of a garbage truck. He was killed in a shootout with police shortly after. McCoy's family, however, said he'd been home with them in Utah for Thanksgiving when the Cooper heist took place. Of course, it would behoove them to lie if he had indeed been D.B. Cooper, seeing as how that certainly would have made them accomplices in aiding and abetting the skyjacking. And then there was Dwayne Weber, who a local ABC affiliate called a slick-looking and smooth-talking insurance salesman. On his deathbed in Florida in 1995, he told his wife, Joe, of 17 years he had a secret. He told her he was Dan Cooper. After he died, Joe started putting pieces together. Apparently, he had worried aloud during a nightmare about leaving fingerprints on a plane. And he had an old knee injury he said was from jumping out of a plane, as well as an old library book about D.B. Cooper in which he'd written notes in the margins. She told ABC... I can't walk away from it. Why would he have an old Northwest Airline ticket? Why would he take me to a place where eventually the money was found? Why all of this? There's too many pieces of the puzzle that fit. The FBI, however, ruled Weber out when they tested DNA lifted from the tie clip in 2001. It didn't match Weber. There are others, of course. There were thousands. But my very favorite man for D.B. Cooper isn't a man at all. Barbara Dayton was assigned male at her birth in 1926, which would have put her in her mid-40s in 1971. Dayton is believed to be the first person to receive gender-confirming surgery in the state of Washington in 1969, two years prior. At some point, her friend Ron Foreman claims she confessed to Foreman and his wife, saying she dressed as a man for the heist and never spent the money because she hid it in a cistern in Woodburn, Oregon, near where she landed. She later was like, um, hey, remember that skyjacking story I told you? (laughs) Yeah, I was totally kidding. When she realized there was no statute of limitations and she could still be prosecuted for the crime. Some believe she put the $5,800 on the banks of the Columbia River in order to spark interest in the investigation again. And the legend lives on, even if the man himself may not. 
some people think that Don Draper, the boozy womanizer from Mad Men, played by John Hamm and his enormous penis, was based on D.B. Cooper. Apparently, he looks off at a plane going by in the final episode, and it got viewers wondering. Needless to say, this one man's vigilante moment left a big impact in the wandering eyes of Americans who were living through a tumultuous period in history. Sometimes, a good story can do that, capture our attention and hold on to it as a substantial distraction from the world crumbling around us. Who was D.B. Cooper? What was his reasoning? And how did his fate turn out? Those answers flew into the wind with him that stormy evening in 1971 and haven't been found since. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, we'll go on a wild journey where one woman's quest for women's liberation rubbed some people the wrong way. The One Taste Cult. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Andrea Jones-Sojola, Luther Creek, and Ryan Garcia. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 